This is a Freedom Church sermon and we are so glad you're listening or watching. Please do check out our website, myfreedom.church, for more information about us, more media and other resources. Right, suppose uh, I make you a cup of tea. Now, those who know me, that, that's quite unlikely because I, I generally default to coffee. Um, but sometimes I've been known to make a cup of tea. Now, it might not be a very good cup of tea, but I, I, I kind of make it. Now, what, what do you need to make a cup of tea? Hot water. Hot water. So we've got the hot water here. Um, uh, what else do you need to make a cup of tea? Tea. tea. Yeah, tea is really important. Yeah, you need tea. Uh, and, and what else? You need well, milk. I haven't got milk, but yes, you do need milk to make a nice cup of tea, I guess. You need a container, don't you, to put the actual stuff in. Now, Kathy, if you could just pour the water out into into that uh, glass cup there, and uh, we'll, we'll show, keep going, all the way, all the way, all the way, keep going, keep going, keep going, there we go, all right, that's enough, now, if, Kathy, can you just plunge that tea bag into that water, hold it up, hold the water up, just plunge it in just once, now take it out, now does that make a good cup of tea, no, no, although I have known somebody who said, can I have Water with a bit of tea. I don't know who, who that is. But what do you need to do to make a good cup of tea? You, you, need, to, you need to submerge it, don't you? You need to put it in, and you need to kind of waggle it around a bit. Can you do that with, with, your, with your fingers? There you go. There you go. So to make a nice cup of tea, a good cup of tea, you need to continuously submerge... Sorry. Steep. Steep. Submerge. Steep. Yes, or indeed mash. You mash the tea. It's a bit of a weird thing, but that's what we used to say growing up. Have you mashed the tea yet? Yeah, you know. So, so, and obviously the more you do it, as you can see here, and you obviously know this, the more the, the, the tea grows stronger in this cup. The, more, the longer the... the long, keep going. It infuses. The longer that they are immersed, the more the water gets into the tea, and the more the tea is actually released into the water, obviously. Okay, that's great. You can leave that in there to... to no, you can, well, if you want to, you can leave it to stew or mash or whatever, or steep, be steeped. I think, I think this is a really simple analogy uh, of one that we can be used to describe our spiritual life. So we are the tea. That the more we're dipped into the, the spiritual... The more we're dipped into that, the more the, more the spiritual life is, dipped, is, sorry, is, is developed in us. And, and the more that we're, we're released into the spiritual life. So it's kind of a continual thing, isn't it? We're, we're, we, 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 we dip into the spiritual, the spiritual life is developed in us, and the more we're released to dip into the spiritual. We just need to start that process, don't we? We can't just dip in and quickly dip out. We won't get anything. The tea will be barely any different. It's only until we're immersed and we're continually steeping ourselves into the spiritual do we become aware of more of him. The more we get to spend time in the things of God, the more time, in fact, that we get to spend in his presence. So spiritual disciplines are like the act of dipping this tea and keeping the tea, keeping the tea in the water. The more we practice various disciplines, the stronger we grow spiritually. And these disciplines 
make a, make a way for us to become more like Christ. So when that water surrounds the tea, the tea is now immersed into the life of a water and it no longer has an identity of its own, does it? It stops being a tea bag and becomes a cup of tea. It's changed into something else. It can, you can't separate that now from the tea, can you? In the same way, when we're purchased by the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, our life is not our own. Did you know that? I hope you did. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he said this, We have to practice strictest daily discipline, only so that the flesh can learn the painful lesson that it has no rights of its own. (laughs) That's a statement and a half, isn't it? But listen to what Paul writes to his spiritual son, Timothy. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4 from verse 7. But have nothing to do with the irreverent folklore and silly myths. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, keeping yourself spiritually fit. For physical training is of some value, and it really is of some value, um, Spiritual training, godliness, is of value in everything and in every way. Since it holds the promise of the present life and for the life to come. This is, I love this, this is a faithful and trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance and approval. I love that Paul says that. It's like going, what I've said is right and you better believe it. It's like this guy is properly confident in what he's saying, isn't he? And we should be as bold when we preach from the Word of God. When we hear from the Spirit, we know what He has said to us because we are steeped in those spiritual disciplines. We're steeped in His presence and we can hear from Him. So, you know, let what you say say that it's a a saying worthy of full acceptance and approval. Now, Richard Foster, and I don't think it's the Richard Foster that we might think of from the um, Ichthus. Um, kind of network down in London. This is a guy from the US and he authored a book called The Celebration of Discipline and he's a professor of spiritual formation at the Azusa Pacific University. Sounds quite, quite a good place, doesn't it? Azusa Pacific University in the US. Well, he, he's identified or he's identified 12 dis- disciplines which he calls the door to liberation. I've listed them on your notes here, but I'll read them. There are four inward disciplines, meditation, prayer, fasting and study, four outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission and service, and four corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance and celebration. Now before I go on, let me just give you a little background as to how I've come to speak about what I'm speaking about this morning. Because what I'm going to talk about is one of those spiritual disciplines. And obviously it's on your notes there, so you know which one. I'm going to talk about fasting. Because look, unless there's a series, unless we're in a series, or there's a celebration of it, or a significant date that we need to acknowledge, I work out what I need to preach by first asking God for guidance. It's always a good place to start, isn't it? God, what do you want me to, to talk about? And sometimes he gives me an answer straight away. But I'd say more often than not, he prompts me through something I've either read in the Bible or indeed another book, Um, maybe even through something I watch, or simply through a conversation that I've had. Those are kind of ways that God speaks to me. And this week, we we had a great time. There wasn't so many people there, but actually that 
was an interesting dynamic. We had a good time at the men's group, didn't we, guys? We were at the men's group. We had a good time. And Stu opened up the time, our time together by talking about the mighty men of valor from, from the Bible. You can look that up yourself. And he, he challenged us as men to see ourselves as men of valor and of courage. But it didn't stay there. The conversation moved into how we're equipping ourselves, how are we encouraging one another. One another. And, and from that, somehow, the, the subject of fasting came up and it became apparent very quickly that just even from the conversation we had that that that's a spiritual discipline that some of us don't seem to do enough of and and in fact corporately you know when we're doing a fast together we don't we don't seem to do enough of despite fasting I think being clearly signposted in in the bible But what fascinated me most of all about the conversation, encouraged me most of all, was the principle that fasting isn't just about denying our bodies nice stuff. But it's much more of a a kind of holistic, a a whole rounded um, spiritual lifestyle. And it was at that point when we were talking about that, that God prompted me, you need to bring some teaching on fasting to our Sunday service, to your Sunday service. And so the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it actually fit with where we've been going over these last three weeks, particularly the, the two weeks where, where Stu talked about worship. Worship being one of those spiritual disciplines that Richard Foster has identified. Because worship is that spiritual discipline. Uh, discipline. So here today, I'm going I'm to try and answer this question, too fast or not too fast? That is the question. <laughs> too fast or not too fast? That is is the question. Now, weirdly, let me begin by sharing with you three reasons not to fast. And interestingly, as I was working this out, I discovered there are believers today who would say that we no longer need to fast. There are those within us, our brothers and our sisters in the faith, who say we don't actually need to do that anymore. And I want to make it clear that I'm not saying this. So even though I'm starting off with three ways of not to fast, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I believe that any unbiased look at scripture would lead us to believe that fasting is not only a valid discipline in in this age, what we call the age of grace, um, but it's actually a vital one. And that being said, we can find some reasons not to fast in the Bible. Let me start by opening up this bit of scripture, Matthew 6 from verse 16, and reading from the Passion Translation. When you fast, don't look like those who pretend to be spiritual. They want everyone to know they're fasting. So they appear in public looking miserable, gloomy, and disheveled. And believe me, they've already received their reward in full. When you fast, don't let it be obvious. But instead, wash your face, groom yourself, and realize that your father in the secret place is the one who is watching all that you do in secret and will continue to reward you openly. It's kind of funny, isn't it? If you remember back to Stu, he showed us a, a jar that he'd put some, a little bit of saffron in. Do you remember? And it turned the, the liquid, kind of, it just a tiny bit of saffron, it turned the liquid, um, well, kind of orangey colour, hadn't it? Um, this bit of scripture, it's actually referring to when people are looking gloomy and dishevelled, it's because they used saffron, they rubbed it into their faces to make them seem weirdly off colour. So it's, that's why he's saying, wash your face. If you're doing that, wash your face. As you fast, look smart. Don't make it obvious. Oh, woe is me. I'm fasting. I'm so hungry. 
Not that at all. So in, in these verses from the book of Matthew, Jesus, so Jesus gives us our first and more in, most important lesson not to fast. He says, do not fast if you're doing so to be noticed by other people. Jesus said that those who look miserable and try to feel, uh, make others feel sorry for them because they're fasting are hypocrites. And he says they'll get their reward. wonder what that reward is is doesn't necessarily say Uh, john piper in a hunger for god says if the reward you aim at in fasting is the admiration sorry fasting is admiration of others this is what you'll get and that will be all you get in other words the danger of hypocrisy is that so it is uh, uh, successful it aims at the praise of men and it succeeds but that's all our reward should be the knowledge and the presence of God. Thank you, Alan. Not the praise of other people in saying how super spiritual we seem or how pious we appear. If that's what you want, if if you desire the praise of others, then go ahead, go on fast. Point out to everyone how hungry you are and how, how greatly you suffer for Jesus. But the reality is, you're not doing it for Jesus if you've got that mindset, are you? You can say no or yes, it's up to you. Jesus knows it. He knows that you're not doing it for him. And he'll not honour your appearance of godliness with the knowledge of him, the presence of him. I mean, you know what? People might praise you, but you won't find the Father. Might say, wow, you're great, you're so spiritual that you're fasting. But if you've done it to get their praise, then they might praise you, but you won't find the Father. Man, if I'm going to give up eating for a time, the last thing I want to do is settle for people to tell me how amazing I am. Give me Daddy God every time. If I can't have him, then I'm going to Nando's or Zizi's for some grilled chicken or crispy pizza. I swear I might. If I can't have you, I might as well go and do that. I think it's important to point out that Jesus didn't say that your fast is invalid if others find out. He's talking about your motive for fasting. We need to be careful that we don't adopt that kind of thinking. Uh, that, that if other people find out, then we've blown it. Uh, and we've gone through all this for nothing. That makes fasting, it makes fasting like a, like a superstition, doesn't it? On par with blowing out your candles on your on your birthday cake, like a birthday wish. You make a wish, you blow out the candles, don't you? And as long as you don't tell anyone, because you're not allowed to, are you? Then your wish will come true. It's important that we don't fast with the aim that others will know. Do what you can. Keep it between you and God. But if others find out, it doesn't make your heart motive any less pure, does it? What do you do when somebody finds out you're fasting? Do, do, Do you throw your hands up in the air and say, crap, my fast is ruined. Rubbish. And then head to Mackey D's. Do you, do you do that? No, of course you don't. People finding out that you're fasting doesn't nullify what, we've got, what they call the sanctity of your fast. But fasting so that others will be impressed, if you're doing that, means that there's no sanctity in it in the first place. By the way, that birthday wish superstition points out a second reason not to fast. You shouldn't fast because you want your wishes to come true. 
There's plenty of teaching out there, and I have, I've read it, that suggests that a person can fast for a few days, and then they can get whatever they want from their deep-pocketed God. Fast a few days, ask for a boat, and God will provide. That's some kind of weird uh, bullseye competition. Here's a boat that's going to sit on your drive and not do anything with, I don't know. Fast for a few days, and you'll receive money to cover all your debts. Fast for a few days, and God will give you the job that you want. Now, I'm not sure that I find that in Scripture. I honestly not sure that I find that. But I am happy to be challenged. Uh, though, do it later, not right now. Um, I, I don't think I find that kind of reasoning for fasting in Scripture. So while fasting might make us ready to know God's will and, and pray, even accordingly to what that will is, it will never be the means to manipulating God into conforming to our will. Amen? As, as if we could ever do that anyway, you know? If you fast as though you're blowing out candles, hoping your wish will come true, you'll soon be disappointed in God and eventually disillusioned with the whole idea of fasting. That isn't the point. Now, I don't want you to hear me wrong, though. I don't want you to hear me wrong. I do think there's power in fasting, obviously. There is power in fasting. And I do think that God will will do something with a situation or a circumstance when we're prompted to fast because of it. But I think there is a huge measure of that being in God's will already and surrounded by prayer and petition. I guess I'm saying, even though I'm specifically talking about fasting right now, any spiritual discipline of that list that we read at the beginning should be worked out with these other disciplines side by side. Um, A third reason not to fast is you don't really know what fasting is for. If you don't know what it's for, what's the point? You might never have fasted before, and you go ahead because you think it's something you should just do as a believer. But you're not quite sure why. When you commit to a fast with that kind of reasoning, I think it becomes more of a religious burden than a faith-filled act. Now remember, we're all included, those of us who believe, we're all included in Christ by faith, not by works, by what we do. We're called to believe, but not to impress upon everyone the depth of our belief. One of the worst things we can do is try and practice fasting, or indeed any of those spiritual disciplines, out of some sense of obligation to the church, without really understanding what it means. The reality is that we only need a little understanding to enter into a fast. And once we've done it, then we'll become gradually more clear as to why we're doing it, But we do it firstly, I think, based on the understanding we have, not reluctantly, under compulsion or under some kind of religious obligation. I don't think we should do it because of those reasons. I think no one should feel obligated to fast. Even if we're calling for a corporate fast, that is, church together, doing it together, especially if fasting is new to you and you don't understand it. Now, having covered the reasons not to fast... Let me give you some reasons why you should fast. All right, reason one. These are on the back of your note sheet as well, actually. Fasting is feasting on God. Fasting is feasting on God. Think about those verses we read earlier. Jesus said that if we fast without the motive to impress others, our fasting in secret will be rewarded by the Father. Amen? Amen. Jesus explicitly says that in this secret place, Daddy God is there. Spending time with our Father is our reward. 
This, I think, is, is that great overarching purpose in all our fasting. It, it's a means through which we draw near to God and he rewards us with his presence. Let me say it again. Fasting is actually feasting. It, it's not suffering for suffering's sake. It's, it's passing up the appetizers and the salads for that main course, if you like. It's, it's always an opportunity to know God and to know his will. In that sense, it's far more satisfying than anything we've given up for the sake of knowing him. Only those who fast, though, yeah, as with anything, I think, with, with, with our faith, it's only until you begin to enter in do you begin to truly understand why, because you're getting closer to the heart of God. So many of us, though, just keep on eating the appetizers and salads and, and say, oh, they're good enough without realizing actually there's a main course which is greater and so much more satisfying than anything we've ever had before. It's a possibly a common thing for those who haven't fasted to look at it and say, it's too high a price. I can't go without food. I've got to have my breakfast in the morning, at least a Starbucks coffee. We might find we spend a lot of time fasting from God, and feasting on life's other pleasures. Fasting is an intentional way of saying, you mean more to me, Father, than any of these things, even the good things like food that you've given us. Fasting is feasting. And if you fast for no other reason, you'll find that to be true. Okay, reason two, you're giving yourself to prayer over an urgent matter. Now, some of the examples of fasting in the Bible occur in the face of like really a big danger, like battles and stuff like that. And when the armies of Moab and Ammon were, were bearing down on Judah, King Jehoshaphat, it's written, says, he resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. Now, that's under the law, don't forget, so there's a separation, we're living in an age of grace, but nevertheless, it's still relevant to us. When Queen Esther was made of, uh, aware of Haman's plot to kill all of the Jews, she instructed Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who were in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. There are times when we realize and when we remember, the only hope we have is in Jesus. That deserves an amen. amen. Fasting is one way to, to tune our attention to God, expression our desperation for him above all other things, and, and making, us, making us still enough to hear his reply and see what he can do. Reason three, your food is to do the will of the Father. So you're fasting, then your food becomes the, to do the will of your Father. Jesus said in John 4, verse 34, My food is to be doing the will of him who sent me and bring it to completion. So a period of fasting can be a time of expressing to the Father that we're joined with Christ in completing his mission. Yeah? Um, I was reading in an article, an online article, and so it was, it was from a, a website based in the US, so slight differences. But it was, it was still an interesting article, and it was concerning a pastor 
who was part of a, a small network of, uh, of kind of other leaders, other pastors. They came together and, and you know, uh, had time together, prayed together, etc. You know what I mean? And one of the questions that, that was asked of him in this article that he wrote, he said, what percentage of your congregation takes personal responsibility for the battle cry of the gospel? It's a question and a half, isn't it? What percentage of your congregation takes personal responsibility for the battle cry of the gospel? Now, his comments in this article was that he couldn't honestly answer that question. Uh, And the reason why were those statements. Personal responsibility, battle cry of the gospel. When asked what percentage of his congregation believed that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, he says that he could answer quite high. Everybody believes that. That's good. But he also said that his experience has shown that most people seem quick to declare the gospel good, but quite slow to take any personal responsibility for it. People, he went on to say, seem to be much more ready to claim personal responsibility for the style of music the church has, or making sure the money is spent wisely. And he'd seen people, go, he says in this article, he'd seen people go to battle over those things. But there were fewer people who consider the urgency of the gospel a battle cry. Now that's one article, that's just one article, right? It's from, it's from one man's experience, and it's, that's actually an entirely different country where kind of Christianity is treated a little bit differently. But I think there's truth in there for all of us. Do you? I think there's truth in there for all of us. If, if we're willing to hold our hands up and admit it, our God, our God is far too often our stomachs. You know, what can we get? What can we, what can we not only what we can eat, but what can we get from this world? And, and the filling up of our appetites, even if it's not, necessarily food, but whatever else it might be, is far too high of a priority most of the time. That becomes our priority, if we hold our hands up and we admit that. So, but it's good news, because fasting then, so when we fast, that means to declare that the thing, it means we're saying, the thing that sustains us most is doing the will of the Father, and joining with Him to give hope to a fallen world through a kingdom restoration. That's the power of fasting. Reason four. Now here's one that's, that, that might be a bit close to home, but it's there. You want to express sorrow for your sin. You want to express sorrow for your sin. When, when Jonah, so who knows about Jonah in the Bible? He's a prophet, isn't he? There's a book of Jonah. And, and he's, he's told to go preach to Nineveh. Um, and in Jonah 3, 5, it says, after they believed what he eventually believed, what the message he was bringing them, it says that they declared a fast. And, and all of them, from the, the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now, has anybody ever worn a sackcloth? Have you worn a sackcloth? What's it like, Alan? Just shout it out. Like wearing a sandpaper. Yeah, it's like wearing, I imagine, it's, I've never worn, wore, when, why, how and why did you wear sackcloth? What? Because I was a Roman slave in a play. Alright, you were a Roman slave in a play. Okay, just for the recording, you were a Roman slave in a play. Okay, so they made you wear actual sackcloth? Wow, okay. Um, it's, it, 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 it's, it's rough, it's coarse, isn't it? it, it it's, it's, I imagine, very, is it a bit itchy as well? Yeah, yeah. It's uncomfortable to wear. And, and, and you would, I bet you were completely aware of that sackcloth all the way through the performance, weren't you? C- completely. 
And so you'd be, if you were wearing it, you would be aware of what, of what it is every minute of every hour of every day that you were, you were fasting and wearing this sackcloth. It would be continually reminding you why you're wearing it, wouldn't it? And that's what they were doing. They wanted to be reminded every second of every minute of every hour of every day that they were doing this process, what they were repenting of. In, uh, in ancient biblical times, that's, that's why you wore it. That's why you, you put on sackcloth, to repent of something. So when Nineveh heard that message of coming judgment, they did a, they did a quick moral inventory. They looked around and thought, oh, crap. <laughs> We're going to get what's coming to us. Because, you know, Nineveh wasn't a nice place. It was a really horrible, deprived place. And, and so these people looking around, seeing what they're like after hearing the, the word of God, and, and they began to mourn over their sin and, and cover themselves, actually, in this hope of finding mercy. In, in Jonah 3, from verse 7, uh, the king himself decrees this. He says, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with, people and animals, I just read that right now, I didn't realise, be covered with sackcloth. Wow, the sackcloth sellers would have had a field day that particular season, wouldn't they? Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion Turn from his fierce anger so that we'll not perish again. I just want to say, that's, that's an age of law. We're now in an age of grace, okay? We are forgiven. But nevertheless, it doesn't take away from this story that their desperation, that they don't want to feel God's wrath. And, and they truly are repenting from their evil ways. And, and when God saw what they did, the story goes on to tell us, and how they did indeed turn from their evil ways. And just to remind you, they were properly evil. They weren't just like, you know, stealing pens from the stationery cupboard or anything like that. These were properly sick, weird, perverse ways of... I'm not going to fill up because there are young people in here, but you can begin to imagine, can't you? Like murder, death, all that kind of stuff. It was horrible. Yet God, and this is why God is the same God in the Old Testament as he is in the New, God had compassion. God had compassion on them and didn't bring the destruction that he had threatened. So fasting, to connect that, to the sackcloth, sackcloth is, is a metaphorical means of us wearing a sack, sackcloth. It, it's a way of entering into mourning, like the Ninevites, over the sins that separate us from God and required the Father to send the Son to the cross on our behalf. So when you're fasting, you'll be amazed at how aware of your sinfulness you become. Like that sackcloth thing, you realize you're remembering why you, wear, why you wore it, as you become hungry, you, you be you aware of the sinfulness. And, and, and though we are a new creation, okay, those of us who are in Christ are a new creation, we, we can still fall prey to sinful ways of thinking and doing. We, we can, and we do. You know, when, when we give that woman walking past us a, a second or a third glance, what, what have we done? We've not just admired God's creation, have we, men? We've done something else in our minds. When, when, when we gossip, when we think or speak negatively about someone to other people, that's, that's a sin. And I'm sure right now you can think of many, many more ways that you might sin, just a little bit. Every other day, maybe, if you're amazing in your life. Yeah, exactly, that's why I said if you're amazing. See, the thing about sin is 
it creeps up on us. And, 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 and it overtakes us before we realized it. And then it's too late. We've, we've done whatever it was that that sinful thought or sinful pleasure wanted to, wanted to bring. But we have Christ. And we come back to him. And we ask for his forgiveness. And he forgives us. But fasting does provide a great opportunity for repentance. Taking off those, those, those old things. You know, those old things that we left behind at the bottom of the baptist pool. You know, sometimes they kind of try and creep back on, don't they? And try and fit themselves onto us. Well, fasting with repentance just tosses those things away again. At reason five, you might want to express a desire to share in Christ's sufferings. Jesus said a really strange thing. And it would be strange if you read this for the first time. He said a strange thing in John 6, verse 51. He says, I alone am this living bread that has come to you from heaven. So far, so not so weird. Eat this bread and you will live forever. Think about this hearing that for the first time. Eat, eat him. And you'll live forever. This living bread, he says, I give to you is my body, which I will offer as a sacrifice so that all may live. Now, obviously, it became understandable what he was talking about. But as you read that in the first instance, you're like, that sounds like cannibalism. I have to eat Christ to, to get to God. And of course, you know, he isn't, he isn't speaking literally, is he? He's speaking figuratively. He, he, he is in the flesh. He is, he is the bread that nourishes if he hadn't come in the flesh, we would not have life. But he gave that flesh on the cross for the world. So when we fast, I keep wanting to say fast, you know, but when we fast, instead of eating physical food, we're choosing to eat the bread of Jesus' flesh. Okay, fasting is feasting. Let's go back to that one. We're choosing to eat the bread of Jesus' flesh, which is to unite ourselves with his suffering for creation. Uniting ourselves with his suffering for creation. It's our way of saying, like with Paul from Philippians 3 verse 10, he said, and I continually long to know the wonders of Jesus more fully and to experience the overflowing power of his resurrection working in me. I will be one with him in his sufferings, and I will be one with him in his death. We share in the ministry of Christ's sufferings when we suffer with him, and we do that to heighten our awareness of, of like the world's hunger, you know, the, the poverty that's going on, the disasters, the man-made disasters that are going on, and even some of the not man-made disasters because of creation's fallen condition. It's not yet under his authority, but it's up to us as a church to go out and bring kingdom authority to those places and those people. And finally, this last reason, you want to express a desire for Christ to come back. Who doesn't want Christ to come back? Good. Nobody answered. Great. That's, that's good. <laughs> a passage of scripture and again, this is weird to think about, but a passage of scripture that some used to teach that fasting isn't for today uh, is Matthew 9, uh, verse 14 and 15. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, the disciples of John the baptizer approached Jesus with his question. 
Why is it that we and the Pharisees fast regularly, but not your disciples? And Jesus replied, how can the sons of the bridal chamber grieve when the bridegroom is next to them? But the days of fasting will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And some argue that since Jesus was raised from the dead and sent his spirit then to be with us, we no longer need to fast because he's with us now. The bridegroom's with us. Some will argue that. It's a bit tenuous, I think, but they'll argue that. But Jesus also said that he was going away to prepare a place for us and would send the Spirit to be our counsellor and guide to the truth. He also told parables about being ready for the return of the bridegroom. So he has gone. He's gone away because he's saying, I'm going. Just because he sends his Spirit doesn't mean that he hasn't gone. So we're in an age where we are what? We are the bride of Christ aren't we? The church is the bride of Christ, and we're expectantly waiting at the return of our bridegroom. And fasting is, is kind of one way to keep the, the oil, there's another story that talks about kind of keeping your oil lit and making sure you're aware and stay awake and all that. We're keeping oil in our lamps, watching for his return. It keeps us aware that we're waiting for him to come back, and he will return in glory. Fasting keeps our mind on that. So my challenge to all of us and to you listening online is is to be prepared to be made new in the attitude of your mind. If you ever thought fasting was too high a price, consider it again. That's that's what I'm, I'm asking you to do. What might be open to you is an entirely new arena through which your life could be immersed in Christ, look how stronger that is now than it was at the beginning. Properly mashed, steeped. <laughs> Do you want to feast on the Father? That line becomes a little bit more understandable now, doesn't it, as we begin to understand it holistically. You, you've got to gain control of your other appetites to really know him. We need to actually get serious with this discipline of, of fasting. And um, just happens last night, I was reading the Christianity magazine. It's a good magazine to get this, Christianity magazine. If you subscribe to it, if you can. Lots of various viewpoints. But I'm reading it. And one of the articles is about, let me just tip it. It's, it's seven ways to stop sinning. It's, it's a, bit of a bit of a clickbait title, but seven ways to stop sinning. You won't believe number seven. You know, um, it's that kind of thing. And um, number two is about developing your willpower. Now, there's two interesting bits in here. Um, let, me re- let me read both bits. The good news, though, that like any muscle, willpower can be increased. And so they did an experiment. Um, research subjects were given weekly gym exercises. And each week, the routines got harder, requiring more willpower to succeed. But as the subjects exerted more willpower in the gym... I'm exhausted just reading this. Their willpower increased in other areas as well. They ate more healthy. They smoked less, drank less, even saved more money in their bank accounts. So anybody who's really fit, you know, they've, they've obviously got money in their bank accounts. I, I haven't, um, to contrast. Um, so this article says we must develop our willpower. That's why the ancient practice of fasting is so important. The early church 
fasted as a routine twice a week, every week. By exercising willpower in one area, they built capacity to resist temptation. I have had pastors tell me that fasting has really helped men who are struggling with pornography. Saying no in one area helps them say no in others. So that's one. But then just let me just finish by reading what it says about the early church and fasting. The early church fasted twice a week as a matter of routine. The Didash, a kind of first century Christian discipleship manual, recommends that Christians should fast on the fourth and the sixth day, which would be Wednesday and Friday. The letter to the Philippians, written by Polycarp of Samaria, uh, Smir- I can never say that. Smyrna, thank you. I always want to say it differently, but it's Smyrna. Urges Christians to be constant in fastings in order to resist temptations. While the second epistle of Clement, which was not by Clement, it was probably a a sermon, uh, written sometime in the late first century, says controversially, fasting is better than prayer. Now it says here, and I would agree, not sure I'd go with that, but they certainly took the practice seriously. Now, I don't want us to think let's practice fasting on the fourth and the sixth day again, because that's getting into a religious kind of mindset. But my point of reading that is, it's serious business. As with all the other disciplines that have been listed earlier and was on your sheet. It's a serious business. So let me leave you and finish with this question. My goodness, the time. To fast or not to fast? That is the question. What will your answer be? Thanks for listening to this sermon from Freedom Church. We'd love to get to know you better if you're not already connected with us. Find out more about us on social media. Just search Freedom Church Leads or email us at hello at myfreedom.church.